Welcome, friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today listening to Glocal News and Social Artistry. I'm your host, Dick Dalton, and we always get to talk to interesting people that are building a more humane world from the inside out. And last week, while I was watching the uh, Martin Luther King celebration on Zoom up at uh, Mizzou, my alma mater, I noticed that an old friend of mine from Lincoln University was introducing the keynote speaker, who was Andrew Young, and that friend of mine is Robin Clay. So, hey, Robin, Robin Clay, good to see you, man. Hi, good afternoon, Dr. Dalton. It's good to see you. It's good to connect. Uh, you know, we see each other throughout the years uh, periodically, and it's, it's great to finally be on the show. I bump into you probably more than any other Lincoln student that I've had in the past, and I don't know why that is. And I actually just uh, recently moved to Columbia late last year. Oh, so you had actually lived in Jeff City the, this whole time. We go back to uh, somewhere, I don't know, 2004 or so, uh, probably when you uh, started your bachelor's degree at, at Lincoln University. Yes. Yeah, I started in 2003 at Lincoln. Were you from this area or are you transplanted? Uh, I am a transplant. I originally grew up in uh, Southern California, so right outside of Los Angeles and uh, Pasadena, California. Spent a lot of time in LA in my childhood, but settled down in middle school and high school in Pasadena. Was there uh, until 2003 when I began uh, my college experience at Lincoln, and I never left. How did you happen to find us at Lincoln? Yeah, so my family, my family is originally from St. Louis. They were transplants to Southern California. Uh, my dad he was a transplant in his teenage years to Southern California when, when their family moved here uh, from St. Louis. And so uh, he has connections to uh, Jefferson City, uh, specifically the, the Logans are uh, cousins of ours. And so we had connections and that's actually how uh, I got connected with Lincoln. My, uh, during my senior year of high school, uh, my eldest uncle passed away and during his funeral, we, we came up and visit, took a visit and did a college visit. And, and Liz Morrow, yeah. uh, who many know very well, she, uh, she sold the university. And uh, that's how I ended up at Lincoln. You know, it, it's uh, amazing. I had Liz as a, probably a freshman way back when she started at Lincoln. And uh, she went on to be in uh, the administration part of uh, enrollment and recruitment and registrar and all that. Yeah. And still going strong, I understand. Yes, absolutely. We've all had a few uh, bumps in the road, but uh, thank God we're still here. <laughs> yes. yes. So sure. you worked at Lincoln for a while, didn't you? Yes. Uh, between 2008 and 2011, I worked in the Office of Admissions at Lincoln. And even... Um, Right after I graduated from, from Lincoln in 2008, I worked with Dr. Constance Williams yes. and Chris Sutton in uh, the Office of Student Affairs and, and Conduct. So I had a chance to intern and work with them right after my graduation. 
and then worked in admissions with Mike Kosher mm -hmm. between 2008 and 2011. I remember all those folks uh, amazingly. <laughs> Absolutely. And then you got introduced to the Med Center in Columbia. Yes. So in 2011, I applied for a position at the University of Missouri School of Medicine uh, to be a recruiter for diversity and inclusion uh, with the School of Medicine. And that's where my career with uh, Mizzou Med began. Um, and over the years, I've had the opportunity to increase my role there. Uh, so now I am an instructor. I work with the Honors College and teach uh, a couple of one credit hour exploratory courses mm -hmm. for uh, those interested in pursuing careers in medicine. And uh, I also now manage diversity and inclusion initiatives for the School of Medicine. So working very closely with our deans uh, and our Office of Student Programs, as well as the campus Office of IDE, which is Inclusion, Diversity, and Equity. Um, so it's, it's definitely a team effort. <laughs> Um, and one that I love doing. One of the interesting components of my career trajectory has been uh, the constant tie into student affairs and student development, which is something that I've found to be a very passionate field for myself. And so uh, it's very rewarding to be able to work with both the undergraduate side of students and with our uh, graduate students who are pursuing their MD degrees. When you were working at Lincoln, were you also working on a master's? Yes, I was. So I began my master's uh, when I was working in the Office of Admissions at Lincoln, and I completed the master's degree after I had transferred over to the University of Missouri. Ah, okay. And that's in guidance and counseling. Yeah. Yes, master's yeah. of education and guidance and counseling. Great degree to have. Yeah. Excellent. It's well, proven to be very uh, helpful in, in working with, with students of all ages. And I can't speak highly enough of uh, the program at Lincoln um, and the professors there, uh, especially uh, folks like uh, Dr. Rhonda Wood, who was a phenomenal resource and mentor to me, and uh, people like Kim Connor, who are so connected to the education side and K-12 side of counseling as well. Good to hear. How long has Mizzou had an Office of Inclusion and Diversity? Is that a longstanding thing? You know, so I can't speak to exactly when, uh, as, as an entire university, the campus began their um, inclusion and diversity efforts. I know for us at the School of Medicine, our Office of Diversity and Inclusion is relatively new. So um, I believe we began our office officially in um, 2018. And so it's relatively new uh, for us. And we were, before then, we, we were really working on a lot of initiatives, but we didn't have that kind of mainstay office and the, you know, all of the wonderful things that come with creating an office as such as resources and support from administration. And so our initiatives were able to be funneled into an office uh, that is led by the Dean of Diversity and Inclusion. And I will say that we, we did have a Dean for Diversity and Inclusion in the medical school prior to my tenure there. You know, it, it was something that has always been on the forefront, but I think we had an opportunity 
here over the last uh, three to four years to really take it to the next level and to, to be intentional about ensuring that our community and our, the space that we, we have is one that is inclusive of everyone within the medical school. Can you give us some practical applications of what that looks like? And by the way, folks, I'm speaking with Robin Clay, graduate of Lincoln University, uh, bachelor's and master's, and uh, now working at the University of Missouri in the Office of Diversity and Inclusion. So some practical examples, Robin? Yes. So, you know, one of the big things with the School of Medicine is trying to be intentional about creating an inclusive community, right? Um, and so a practical way that we did that, and there, there were several things. Um, one that I was directly involved in was the creation of our include, inclusivity symposia, which are opportunities for those who are interviewing for our program to become engaged with current faculty, students, and staff who uh, are active agents within diversity and inclusion in the medical school. And so it's a twofold process for, for us. For one, uh, the, these incoming students have an opportunity to see that they will be supported, especially if they come from underrepresented backgrounds, and, and those can include underrepresented minorities, those from various uh, religious minorities in the United States, and those who have uh, even sexual and gender minorities mm. as well. And so being able to see that you have an ally in the medical school if you choose to attend Mizzou is very important for us. And then also it allows us as a program to continue to have discussions that allow us to engage in our differences, right? So for us to be able to say, yes, our differences are what make us great and our uniqueness is what helps us to grow. And, uh, and so we, we have those regular conversations um, and, and it has proven to be a program and initiative that our uh, prospective students have found to be beneficial in making their decision to attend Mizzou a positive one. Yes, yes, indeed. Well, you've been there, you said, since uh, 2011, right? Yes. And Mizzou's been going through quite a diversity and inclusion uh, roller coaster since you arrived. Absolutely, yes. Uh, how have you personally and your department area interfaced with the increased awareness of the lack of inclusion and diversity? Um, yeah, you know, um, and I think just for the, the viewers who, who may not be aware, I think a lot of what you are alluding to are the, the, the uprisings of 2015. And, you know, the, the hunger strike of Jonathan Butler, the demands of concerned student 1950. Yeah, it, it was a tumultuous time. But I'll never forget the, the dean of the medical at the, at the time, Dr. Delafontaine, he gave us a charge as a medical school. Um, and we happened to have a regularly scheduled town hall meeting kind of right after that had happened. And, you know, he said, even though because we're a little separated from campus, it didn't have as, as big of an effect on us as a medical school, but he took it as an opportunity for us to be an example and to be proactive, right? And say, even though that this has not had a direct effect on our 
medical school and on our students uh, as it has the undergrads, this still is an opportunity for us to make a change within our program and to ensure that we don't have those issues. And our current Dean, Dr. Stevens Zweig, has been an active champion even before he was in this position of diversity and inclusion. He has been a champion and active agent in ensuring that the School of Medicine is being held accountable for our diversity and inclusion initiatives and and even our students. I, I love to say, and I have to shout out all of our medical students who are active in holding us accountable. They challenge us day after day to continue to be better. And it's things, you know, that are as simple as ensuring that we have appropriate representation in our textbooks and in our anatomy curriculum, and even in our patient-based learning curriculum that we have. So in our patient cases, ensuring that we have diversity uh, within those cases, ensuring that when we think about our patients, we are uh, really thinking about them in a global perspective and recognizing that they are not one thing, but they are people who have multiple experiences, who some who may be scared and fearful in, in during their healthcare experience. And, and so we're trying our best to train culturally competent physicians. And so, yeah, so all of that to say, the effects of 2015 on the med school allowed us to be very proactive. And even in, in my role and with the people that I work with in um, student programs, we were really allowed to kind of take charge and have fun and, and get creative with the types of programs that we were creating. Um, and so that kind of, uh, even though this program had been held prior, my colleague who, who's phenomenal, Andrea Simmons, she uh, really worked with our med prep programs to create a diversity and inclusion primer that um, really allowed for incoming students to, to have an opportunity to say, okay, here's how we engage in creating a more inclusive community and a community of inclusive excellence within the medical school. So that right from the jump, these students recognize that this is something of importance. It's something that we believe in and it's something that we will hold them accountable to uh, in the School of Medicine. So let, let me take some simple examples to start with. Let's go to the cafeteria. And is there representation in terms of food choices that people have, not just uh, the people that go to the cafeteria to eat, but then to the patients, if I was a vegetarian or if I was uh... Yes, there, there, are, there are all types of options mm -hmm. uh, within the cafeteria. And uh, yes, that's even something we think about. And it's funny you bring that up because it's something that I think has been difficult you know, for, I think growing up, I, I grew up with, with parents who were of the idea that if I, if I cook dinner, you eat what I fix for you. And, <laughs> yeah. and there are no options, right? And so um, even when we were thinking about planning our programs, we have to be more intentional about recognizing that there are diverse dietary needs, mm -hmm. right? And for someone who, you know, like me, I don't have many dietary restrictions, you know, it can be difficult and it was difficult at the beginning 
to try to remember all of the different options that may be around. And then recognizing that, uh, I think one example is we had a, a participant in one of our programs who was extremely allergic to apples to the point where they couldn't even have, you know, have the, the aroma of apples in, in the buffet line. And so mm-hmm. we, would, we had typically ordered this salad that had dried apples in it, right? And um, that was just one of those things that we kind of had to make sure that they knew we couldn't have that in that particular event. So it's, it's interesting and it's challenging. And I kind of, kind of equate it to one of the challenges that we have, and we've discussed this briefly, in um, the new landscape of um, how, you know, of, of transgender uh, coming to the forefront. Mm-hmm. And, um, and even uh, just people identifying as different genders and, and the use of pronouns, uh, and that being very important. So being able to say, yes, my name is Robin Clay, I use he, him pronouns, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and, and understanding that there are some people who are gender fluid. And so, you know, I, I've interacted with students who say, uh, you know, their name and they'll say, I use she, her pronouns, but I also use they, them pronouns, mm-hmm. right? And, um, you know, and there are, as I've, I've learned with working with our LGBTQ Resource Center at the MU campus, uh, there are over a hundred genders that people can identify with. And I did not know that uh, before just a few months ago. And so, um, you know, just as far as I'm concerned, um, I, I wanna call you what you prefer to be called. It doesn't hurt me in any way to, um, to recognize you and to see you as, as you would like to be seen. Well, as I said to you uh, before we started the recording, <laughs> I had seen your pronouns uh, by your name on the Zoom screen. Yes. And I said, well, Robin, uh, I'm an it. <laughs> and I, I, that may be one of the things that, that people may choose, but it's because I think of myself as, uh, in the introduction, I said pods of consciousness uh, or soul. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a spiritual being in here and gender is an outward appearance and if it's comfortable to you to see me as a man well okay that that's fine i can handle that but internally i see myself as an it um, and i see you as an it but i understand i i'll honor your he him uh, <laughs> because that's the appearance you give so even things like that can be sort of complicated i guess uh, yeah Absolutely. And I think, you know, just even being able to hear your perspective on that allows me to, to recognize that, you know, others can have a different perspective. And I don't know all of the genders. I don't know all of the ways that people identify themselves. And I respect your it. Mm-hmm. All right. Just like you respect my he, him. Yeah. I respect your it. And if I think as a society, if we can begin to respect people as they are, um, we can begin to do a lot better. 
Yeah, and, and of course, we wouldn't know that until we had a chance to talk or, or see a name tag or something, and then we would try to honor that as best we could uh, with our old habits, yes. <laughs> interfering uh, uh, right and left, sure. By the way, folks, I'm speaking with Robin Clay, uh, graduate of Lincoln University, uh, bachelor's and master's, and uh, now working at the University of Missouri in the Office of Diversity and Inclusion. So did, did your office be get put in charge of the MLK celebration? It, it seemed like so much of what happened last week came out of uh, the medical school. So no, uh, the, the medical school was a sponsor of the MLK celebration. Uh, but I actually had the opportunity and was invited to serve on the MLK committee uh, mm. as a staff member uh, within the university community. And uh, the MLK celebration is sponsored by the Office of Inclusion, Diversity and Equity on the main campus. Uh, and so um, our committee consists of people from all offices around the, the campus and um, the various schools, including arts and sciences, the College of Education. Um, the, uh, there were students, both undergraduate and graduate students represented on the committee as well. Great. Well, I was so happy. I, I don't know if I mentioned to you, but I got uh, invited to come back to Lincoln and do an adjunct teaching job this spring. So I'm actually now in class again uh, okay. with something that's right down your alley and and it's called healthcare ethics. Yes. And uh, now that I have you on the line or I've got your phone number, uh, <laughs> I think I'm gonna be asking you more issue, questions about healthcare ethics issues that uh, might come up. And I, I'm not gonna pick your brain to today on that subject, but I just wanted to say that I got out of class last week and remembered that the celebration was starting at about, I don't know, four o'clock or whatever, 4.30. So I just stayed in the classroom and watched the whole uh, shebang on the, the big screen uh, with the projector going. Very well done, uh, beautiful job. And then lo and behold, here comes my friend Robin Clay introducing Andrew Young. Yes. So had you ever met Ambassador Young? Before? I had not. No, um, it was my first time interacting with him. Uh, I, I I'm very fortunate to have grown up in, in Southern California in a church that was very uh, committed and engaged with social justice. And um, my former uh, minister, the Reverend Dr. James M. Lawson, uh, is someone who I'd engaged with. And, and Reverend Lawson um, has been uh, known for his work with the Freedom Riders and uh, with the SCLC. And so uh, he was, you know, definitely someone who was an inspiration to me in terms of working with um, social justice. And so um, I've met many social justice leaders, but Andrew Young, uh, Ambassador Andrew Young, was not one of them. And so it was a pleasure to, to have the opportunity to share space with him. 
I think it might be okay and, and maybe even a little interesting for our audience to, to go through a little bit of what he had to say because I, I'm of his era. He's a little older than I am, granted, but uh, I had some experiences uh, in the march from Selma to Montgomery, for instance, or Dr. Ken came to our campus uh, and I got to have a meal with him uh, as a college student. But okay. not, not that I knew anything about what was going on in the world. It was just one of those happenstance kinds of things. And I, I said, yes, you know, uh, but it connected me to that whole movement that was going on. And, and as I grew on into working at Lincoln University, it, it even increased my connection to my past. And it, it really gave me a, a much greater respect for what had been going on and, and how ignorant I was as a, a young white guy uh, that didn't read newspapers or watch TV and, you know, <laughs> how, how little we knew some of us at, at that time. But Andrew Young had just come from Hank Aaron's funeral. Yes, yes. And came into his office wondering what he might say to this audience. And he sat down at his desk and the Zoom camera was on. And he starts to talk about a man that most of us didn't know, a guy, uh, Leslie, uh, was it Warnack or Womack? Yeah. yeah. Who turns out to be a white guy, apparently. Is that what you got from it? No, not necessarily, but maybe. Yeah, well. Uh, okay, yeah. See, we didn't know, did we? No. It, it was he didn't say that he was a this or a that, but but he said that this guy had at twelve years old met uh, Mahatma Gandhi, and had been impressed. You know, some kind of a message got through into his mind, and later in life, when he was very wealthy, he saw the need for nonviolence to be available to the civil rights movement somehow and donated monies and created ways for that to be um, made available in a, in a greater way. I, maybe you can say it better than I can. Maybe can you share a little bit of what you recall of that? No, I think, I think you, you have it pretty spot on. So this partner in in growing the nonviolent movement of Martin Luther King. And actually, as he said, you know, Martin was just a young 20 something that happened to be in a place at a time when completely out of his game plan <laughs> was called on to, uh, to step up. And he did, it was not in his, uh, wildest dreams, you might say, uh, to have the the notoriety and and uh, responsibility that he ended up sharing. Right. So I, I think. Yeah. Go ahead. And you know, one of the things that stood out to me from Ambassador Young's 
discussion was kind of that piece, right? Of being a young man in a place at a time, like you described. And it, it and even Ambassador Young brought up 2015 Mizzou. When, you know, a young student took a stand um, and there well, were several students, you know, um, but one student silently stood by and made the loudest impact, right? Not in, in words, in deed and in act um, and has effectively changed, I believe, colleges around the country by this act. And, um, you know, I, I believe that there was some, there, there's been some discussion and uh, after Ambassador Young's discussion about him, his comment about, you know, things not being planned. And one of the things that I recognize is that in order for the movement to happen, there was a lot of planning that had to take place. But I also recognize that there were situations that happened that no one could have imagined, like you said, in their wildest dreams um, that led to what we now know as the civil rights movement. Um, and it takes, and I, I, I think it's a great example to the young people um, of, our, of our own society that it doesn't take a lot for you to make a big wake and for you to create an impact. Um, you just have to be in the right place and at the right time with the right, um, with the right intention. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know. I, I was so struck with what um, Andrew Young was saying when he got to that point, because he didn't start off with that. This no. great, uh, maybe he yeah. answered to a question that somebody yes. asked. And, and his point was, as I got it, that this was a nonviolent spiritual act of one person, a nonviolent spiritual act. And, and Jung was saying that, you know, it, his whole life had been a spiritual journey. That's the way he viewed his life. And he was pretty sure Dr. King viewed his life that way as well. That, you know, some of us look at our lives as, well, I decided to do this and well, I made this happen. And, yeah. that, that wasn't the way that these fellows were looking at life. And to me, that was just a wonderful um, example and message for people to hear that that our our inner life, our our spiritual world, um, really has a power. If we're, <laughs> um, as as my program from the inside out, you know, it's an it's working from the inside out to make that kind of a, a statement or a change. Uh, so I was so glad he brought that up. It was. It was very meaningful to me. Good, good, good. Um, you know uh, Ruben Fologi? I'm not familiar. He 
he was one of the concerned students, 19510. Uh, he went on to finish his uh, PhD at Mizzou in education. Uh, and actually, uh, he, he is called a psychologist because it was a, a branch of the Department of Education that ended up as a psychology degree. And he's down in Florida. And uh, he was a guest on my show just a few weeks back. And we were, again, recounting some of the uh, circumstances around that time. And I, I wanted to bring up that he used the expression that today he is still healing from the microaggressions that he experienced as a black student in graduate school at Mizzou. And I think that statement speaks directly to what your office is trying to be more sensitive to and, and to address in better and better ways. Absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, um, I, I often have discussions with students who are uh, interested in, in the School of Medicine and, and those of color will ask the question, you know, how is diversity? And I, I often say it is not perfect. Right, we can always continue to grow, and um, I often, you know, describe that I recognize that I have had a fortunate experience uh, with the University of Missouri, and it may be because the School of Medicine is a little bit siloed, um, and you know, it, it, there may be a very variation of reasons as to why I've had a positive experience but I recognize fully that that is not everyone's experience, especially for black males and black females on the Mizzou campus. Um, and so, yes, it is definitely a charge that I take seriously that we can increase the opportunities that our students have to thrive in an environment where they feel safe, where they feel valued, where they can, get through medical school without struggling through severe microaggressions day after day. And yet and still, even though, um, even though we have all of these programs, uh, I still meet with students regularly who experience these microaggressions. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that the work that we do in diversity and inclusion is still very voluntary, right? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times you're preaching to the choir. Mm -hmm. The people who are at these events and who participate in these various diversity and inclusion and equity initiatives are often the people who understand its value. Mm -hmm. um, and so for many who don't participate, there's still this cycle of you know, uh, being aggressive towards others. Um, and, and I use others very broadly, those who are an other, those who are lost in the margins, um, those, those people who um, are often considered less than for whatever reason. Um, 
they're still experiencing um, these these terrible experiences day after day. And I think one of the part of our Med Prep three uh, diversity and inclusion primer that we do is discusses microaggressions. And I think one of the best analogies that I can think of is that a microaggression is like a mosquito bite. You know, one mosquito bite, you, you may or may not be affected by it. But if you had 200 mosquito bites, right, one after the other, that would make your life miserable. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, many people uh, experience these things still, uh, mainly because the, those who really need to hear what we're talking about are not listening and, and choose not to listen because the, the information is out there. In that vein, does Mizzou have an amped up mental health availability uh, for counselors, for uh, group, uh, whatever you do. And you're not in your head, yes, but the audience can't see that. Tell me about it. Yes, so absolutely. We, we have um, very strong student wellness programs that we've initiated and, and we've uh, increasingly implemented over the years. These programs, um, have really been tied to the research that shows, you know, high student burnout in uh, within medical students, but also within the medical profession. Mm -hmm. And so we are very intentional about ensuring that our students meet with an in-house psychiatrist at least once um, a year, um, or and we try to do at least once a, a semester if they can. But we do have someone that is uh, specific to our School of Medicine students that they can reach out to. Um, in addition to that, we have student committees that allow that tell the staff what the students need. So it's not just what the staff thinks the students need. They actually tell us what they need and we try to ensure that they have uh, those resources. And also the university as a whole, um, any student has access to the um, student health center and to mental health resources um, that are included in their student fees. So um, we take a very intentional approach to student wellness and we try our best to ensure that our students are not burning out uh, as medical students. Um, curious question comes up to mind. Uh, in the larger campus community, is there data being collected on which students are taking advantage of those programs in uh, mental health at the health center uh, and whether or not black students or uh, other students that are considered other uh, are taking advantage of those uh, at all or a lot. And I think that would be valuable information to uh, get your hands on. I agree. I think that would be very valuable information. And I, I don't know the answer. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I, I don't know if they're collecting that data. Um, I'm sure that somewhere, and especially within the student health office, I'm sure that they're collecting uh, data along those lines. 
Uh, but specific to your point, I am not sure. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I will say uh, that I interact with several um, black male undergraduate students and they, um, and, and in, in working with them, I've been able to see that the, uh, the student health office, the, the mental wellness resources uh, that are available are becoming uh, more diverse. So there are more black male counselors becoming available uh, because you know our black male students in, in many respects don't feel comfortable talking to a white male or a white female um, about mental health. Uh, and some of it is cultural. Um, some of it is just uh, not trusting uh, the system and the mental health system for whatever reason. So uh, there are a lot of those um, different things that play into uh, that play into that. But I know that I have seen an increase and it's, it's, it's small, right? It's not a huge increase, but I think any increase is good. And by the way, folks, I'm speaking with Robin Clay, uh, graduate of Lincoln University, uh, bachelor's and master's, and uh, now working at the University of Missouri in the Office of Diversity and Inclusion. With as large a campus, uh, and again, we're kind of out of your somewhat siloed uh, office responsibility, but it, it's a large campus, and we were talking about spirituality a little bit ago, and I wondered what kind of access students felt they had to uh, either churches or, or are there on-campus uh, uh, spiritual groups that are, have made their meetings available? Uh, I wondered how students would access that. Uh, yeah, so the, there, there are a host of student organizations uh, on campus for both graduate students and undergraduate students. Um, and, and several of them are uh, religious affinity groups. So um, I know we have um, several uh, Sikh students on our campus. So there are Sikh student groups. Of course, uh, there's, uh, I have students that I work with who are a part of the Muslim student organizations. Um, there is, I, I wanna, and I'm, I, I may misspeak, but I know that there, there are religious um, buildings on and near campus as well. So um, there are opportunities for people to have places of worship on campus um, or you know, even have social interaction with those who may have similar religious beliefs as well. One other area that uh, see, I used to work at the Med Center in the accounting office area, but I also worked across the street when the VA hospital first opened. And I'm aware that you all have a tunnel that connects the buildings and, yes, <laughs> and a lot of uh, relationship stuff that goes on. How does your office interface with a federal program, uh, the VA, across the street in terms of diversity and inclusion? Do you have any uh, interaction? Do they have an office uh, that uh, is a sister office, brother office? 
Um, you know, I don't know. Um, I actually, uh, the, the VA is, is a, a different kind of entity. I know that our students do rotations there and that's kind of the extent of the information that I have. Um, I will say, and this is something that surprised me and even surprised others, um, the, the VA here in Columbia, Missouri has actually been listed as a top hospital by a national LGBTQ organization. Mm. As a, a one of the top LGBTQ serving hospitals in the country. And, um, you know, you think, you know, central Missouri uh, sometimes doesn't have it all together, but when you hear statistics like that, um, it's exciting to know that, you know, RVA has been recognized in that way. Wonderful. No, I didn't know that either. We'll, we'll have to uh, promote that. <laughs> really? Yeah. Um, well, let's see. What other areas about Robin Clay can we uh, explore? I, I do know that you are a fraternity member. Yes. Five um, member. Five. What is it? Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated, the greatest fraternity in the world. <laughs> uh, founded in January 9th, 1914, uh, and really uh, served the principles of brotherhood, scholarship, and service. Um, I work with our local chapter, the New Theta Sigma chapter here. We serve uh, Jeff City, Columbia, and Kirksville, so the entire central Missouri region. Um, and um, we, we, we really just try to ensure that we're making this a more humane society. Wonderful. Uh, working with our uh, adopt-a-school program, um, especially in Kirksville, our, the, the brothers in Kirksville, Missouri have been doing a great job with um, a middle school there and um, really just having these students engaged with um, the fraternity and understanding um, not only black history, but uh, the history of um, black Greek letter organizations as well. Um, and in addition to that, we also have been doing a really big push this past year uh, to support black owned businesses locally as well. And so, uh, those are just a few of the things that we're doing um, here in the central Missouri area. Uh, and I'm a proud member. I was initiated at Lincoln University through the Beta Chi chapter in fall of 2007. Um, and I've been a financially active member ever since. Additionally, I am a doctoral student uh, at the University of Missouri. So I'm working on my doctorate of education. Hey! the uh, Department of Educational Leadership and Policy Analysis uh, with my research really focusing on uh, black males and matriculation into medical school, looking at the effects of mentoring uh, on how we can increase the number of black males that uh, matriculate into medical schools because there is uh, a dire need for black males to become physicians. Right. Uh, think about the uh, statistics. Black males um, are just not represented in the medical profession. 
especially in relation to uh, the black males in the population of the United States. And so we increase uh, the number of black males uh, who are becoming physicians. Wonderful. Uh, have you, I uh, guess, bumped into Dr. Malfati uh, in your... Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, we, uh, we actually met just before the end of the year uh, for coffee and um, Dr. Malfati was a, a great resource to me even when I was an undergrad, when she was working uh, at Lincoln in the foreign languages department. Um, and now she's been a phenomenal resource as a peer, as a, a graduate of the uh, doctorate program in uh, the University of Missouri as well. Yes, she was on our program awake almost three years ago now. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's great to be able to have conversations like this with uh, folks from our, our past. Absolutely. So when I went to Mizzou, uh, which I, I went as a freshman and then I transferred to SMU for my uh, uh, work to finish my bachelor's and then uh, came back to Mizzou and got a second bachelor's, master's, and my PhD there at, in the education department. Uh, I don't recall there being any, hardly any black students, but uh, black fraternities didn't seem to be something, at least in my awareness. I knew there was the farmhouse for ag students, but uh, when did black fraternities make a presence at Mizzou? Wow. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know for sure. Hmm? Um, and I want to say, and I can only speak to um, our chapter. At, so Phi Beta Sigma made a presence on the Mizzou campus, I believe in the late 90, uh, 70s. Oh. So, um, but, oh. and I, I'm not 100% sure as if, you know, there were others they are prior to that. Um, so, you know, it has been, um, it's still relatively new. Yeah. Like you said. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that their presence of all of the Black Greek letter organizations uh, provide that added sense of community for our students of color. Yeah. On that campus. Right. And the positive experience you've had from 2007 on with uh, with your fraternity and I know other men and other fraternities have positive experiences as well so it it's a it's a, a thing particularly for men I think that don't often bond well outside of a, an intentional organization like that uh, very very useful is there any other area uh, you mentioned your doctoral program is going so I'm a, I'm a second year student right now. Um, and in the, uh, the ED-D program, so the Doctorate of Education program is a cohort program. Um, and so I'll be finishing up my coursework at the end of this spring semester in May, uh, and then moving on into comprehensive exams. And uh, after comprehensive exams, after passing those, I will begin working on my dissertation. Mm -hmm. You know, back in, in when I was in school, we didn't use the word cohort. What does that mean, really? 
So it's, it's really for the doctorate of education program, it's really just in, intentionally uh, having the same group of students go through the same coursework in the oh. same timeline. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have been with the same uh, about 90 students since the summer of 2019. Oh. And um, we've all taken the same courses together. And, you know, really it's about building community. Uh, the Doctorate of Education program, it has a little more of a practical application versus the theoretical application of a PhD. And so um, being able to interact with uh, peers, both in K-12 education and in higher education has been extremely beneficial to me um, not only for you know, the, the aspect of being able to work with your peers, but also to be able to have the perspective from those in, working in, in K-12 uh, versus those working in higher education. Um, and we have you know, uh, all types of peers. So we have people who are working as uh, on the teacher level. We have in, in K through 12 education, we have, those who are administrators in K-12. And we also have those who are in um, higher education in both the professor side and the administration side. Excellent, yeah, that, that explains it. I think I could go and, and tell somebody else what that means now. <laughs> uh, another student that's, I guess, in the cohort uh, a little before you, uh, Nikita Nicola is uh, at least what she goes by on Facebook. Her actual name is Nikita Coombs, C-O-O-M-B-S, a Lincoln graduate. Uh, and she's uh, now doing her internship up in uh, Minnesota or Michigan, somewhere up north, uh, and about to, to wrap it all up. So awesome. another, another doctoral student out of good old LU, um, making a difference in our world. That's right. We all have this very strong blue tiger pride, um, you know, and, and I, I would be remiss if I did not mention before we get off the call how proud I am to be a product of Lincoln University, uh, formerly known as the Harvard, the Black Harvard of the Midwest, um, you know, and the life experiences that I gained from uh, this beautiful HBCU in Jefferson City, Missouri um, has just been so beneficial to me and being able to meet um, people like you who have served as, as mentors over the years um, and, you know, and, and people like uh, Dr. David Henson who, um, who really just uh, kind of gave a real strong charge to my first few years at Lincoln um, you know, th those types of people you just never forget. Yeah. And of course, uh, every school goes through its changes and uh, ups and downs. And uh, yes. I, I'm learning now, I mean, and then this time of COVID, which we haven't even spoken of uh, on our call. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> we hear enough about it, huh? Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, I'm in a classroom and everybody's wearing masks. And, uh, you know, I'm such a social, verbal, I 
visual person that it's it's really difficult to be unable to see the facial expressions of the students or to express my own. So uh, I'm sure you're, uh, what happens in your student uh, classrooms at, at the med school? Are, are they masked up? Yes, so we, we, we adhere to the, um, universe. so we have kind of three different uh, people that we, uh, <laughs> we have to go over in terms of guidelines for the, the medical students. So we not only do we have the university uh, guidelines, we have the Boone County guidelines, as well as the, the uh, state health department and the um, MU healthcare guidelines. So we have a lot of people that we receive guidelines from. And so our students have been um, very safe. We've had limited um, COVID exposure um, since this outbreak has begun. And I think that that speaks very strongly to the use of masks and responsible uh, choices. And so um, we've done a, a really good job. We currently, our medical students are in a hybrid format. Um, mm -hmm. I uh, decided to do my undergraduate courses in a completely virtual format mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. semester, um, just for, for safety purposes as well. I didn't get that choice. I think I might have taken it if I had. Well, Robin Clay, I, I think there are some more things we could talk about, but our time is, has run out. Well, I'll be happy to join you again. I, I just want to say this has been a delightful experience to see you. Uh, sorry, the, the uh, radio audience can't see your uh, beautiful face <laughs> and Thank smile and, uh, and they have such a, a an interesting conversation about the real-time activities that are going on right here in Columbia, Missouri, and uh, uh, that are helping our world become more humane, truly. Yeah. Yes. I'm glad you're there representing us. Appreciate yeah, and it. I, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, audience, uh, folks, remember, wherever you are, that is your world. Uh, please leave your world cleaner more peaceful and more loving than you found it because if it is to be, it is up to us. So take care and talk to you soon.